When you think about it, we're all investors. Whether we're investing in a place to call home or putting super aside, investing for life after work. I'm Adam Masters, host of AMP's new podcast, a series aimed at everyday investors like you. To hear experts discuss and demystify everything from SMSFs and the property market to Shane Oliver's top five investment mantras, subscribe to AMP's podcast, Simplifying Investing. Visit amp.com.au slash podcast. AMP, for the investor in all of us. Millions of despairing men, women and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the The kingdom kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the U.S. Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. There is very compelling evidence that we we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone into this this week's episode of Garden of Doom, and this continues with our UFO or un- unidentified aerial phenomenon theme. And we're very happy to have another author this week, Richard Rookby, uh, from joins us from Britain. Uh, his new book is called The Lights Upon the Hills. It's about the Burton Bassett UFO events of 1923. And Richard is a writer and a researcher with a keen in- interest in history. Mysteries and Forbidden Knowledge. He's previously served in both the British Army and the UK Police. He holds an advanced certificate in education from Canterbury Christchurch University. He's a qualified police detective and has diplomas in criminology and ufology. He's married with three kids and lives in Warwickshire. Um, and we've got some contact information, stuff like that, that we'll probably talk about at the end when uh, Richard gets a chance to plug his own stuff. But yeah. Welcome to Garden of Doom, and thanks for joining us. How are you this week? I'm good, Jeff. Thanks for asking me to come on. It's very kind. 
No, the pleasure is ours. We're very happy to hear from authors, and we have a good relationship with your publisher as well, and and we're very excited about this. And this is something I know absolutely nothing about. So this is going to be uh, mostly your show, but, uh, you know, this, this is obviously a UFO sighting, though it, it looks like a lot of local papers or people tried to uh, call it ghosts. Um, maybe they're one and the same. I, I, I don't know if you're, if you're trying to, uh, cover something up that's UFOs and call it ghosts or trying to cover something up that's ghosts and call it UFOs. I'm not sure which one is, is the more, uh, more designed to throw one off the scent, but in any event, I'm sure that's some of the stuff that you will talk about. Um, so yeah, without further ado, why don't you tell us about the inspiration that, that, uh, led you on this journey to research this series of events? Well, um, I suppose it started when I, I moved up from London to the Warwickshire area in uh, 2002. And I'm um, a bit of a reader and an avid history fan. So I, I picked up a couple of books around local history, uh, including one that was uh, about ghosts, really. Um, and I'm uh, not that interested in ghosts. I think they've got their place, but um, that's not my main focus. But I did pick up this book because it looked intriguing and it's called Ghosts of Warwickshire by um, a local author, a well-regarded author called Betty Smith and um, I read through this, the, the very short sort of chapters but one chapter stuck with me and it was uh, it was called Lights um, on the Hills or Lights on Burnbassett Hills and it was an account of um, how in 1922, 1923, sort of the Christmas New Year period, um, a number of lights had been seen on the hills, and um, it had been attributed to ghost sightings, which at that time, around that sort of period, wasn't that unusual. People, if they saw lights or strange objects in the sky or frequenting an area, would often think it was ghosts. And, um, you know, in, in, put it in the context, it was uh, recent, um, recently after the World War, after World War One. Um, where Warwickshire, like every other part of uh, United Kingdom, have been deeply affected by loss of life, and uh, to a lesser extent, but certainly around the world, uh, the Spanish flu. So people would, on a Sunday afternoon as a pastime, go up onto the hills and look for these lights as a sort of um, a confirmation, really, of their their beliefs that they may see their their sons and daughters again. So I thought it was a fascinating story, but it was only two or three pages, um, and it just sort of stayed with me. And then when I got a bit more time and was starting to research a bit more into ufology, particularly, I, I thought it deserved um, a deeper dive and it deserved uh, looking at it in um, in more detail and through through the lens, I suppose, of what we know now around ufology. So that's. That's how it started. So it was a sort of uh, 20-year slow burner um, idea in my head that eventually got to, I got to do. How old were, uh, person were you at the time? So how old was I then? Well, I was uh, a, um, I would have been in my early 30s. So I was still very much driven by my career. I was a detective in a local police force. Um, but I still had an interest. I've always had an interest in ufology, really, since I was a child, growing up in the seventies. Um, so it did stay with me. But um, eventually, I, uh, you know, if we're honest, probably um, 
encouraged by the pandemic for something to do during that period. Sure. I decided to I decided to look at it in, in more detail and um so this is this is my first attempt at the book and I don't know how know how much work goes into them. So I have a lot of admiration for authors. Um so yeah, so I eventually managed to put we'll carry on the research uh, and then um started off as an article uh, and that you mentioned um Flying Disc Press earlier on with, with Philip Mantle was very supportive and said actually I think with a bit of more um more research and a bit more work we could turn it into a um, um a short book, which is what we've done. So I'd be very pleased with the product route. Good. All right, very good. All right, so this this is a sort of like a, a lifelong obsession, and you stumbled upon this story through an article that you read, and I guess that sort of got its hooks in you. And uh, a few years or a couple decades later, you decide to revisit it in some detail. Yeah, and um, the area is, is very close to where I live, and um, it's you know the, you know just to, again just to explain to your to your listeners the the area. So Warwickshire is. Generally, rolling English countryside. It's the most typical rolling English countryside you can imagine. We're right in the centre of England. It's sometimes called the heart of England. Uh, we have um, the big towns uh, of Leamington Spa and Stratford upon Avon, of course, where Shakespeare is from. And Burton Dasset um, sort of stands out really because uh, the countryside is is rolling countryside, but then we get these five hills that sort of loom out. Of, of the ground, um, they're about two, six, two meters tall, which isn't massive, but it, they do, they are very prominent in this area. And it was just really on my doorstep as well. So I felt that, um, you know, we, I could go along and, and do some sort of research in that, in that area. And it's, it really is a fascinating, fascinating area. It's one of these areas that has an awful lot going on in a very small, um, very small, relatively small space so it's probably less than a mile square it's now a country park but uh, as i detail in the book there's all these sort of factors that sort of make it quite a special area just uh, for reference uh like where in england is it is it close to london is it not close to london at all no so we're in the center of england so we're about directly 100 miles north of london about 20 miles south of birmingham and with about the furthest place you can get from the sea so there is, uh, there's, you know, the coasts are east and west, some distance away from us. So it's right in the heart of England. Really. Would that have been a uh, uh, Minster in the, uh, the Middle Ages? Oh, what, sorry? Would that have been Minster? I know there was Wessex, Essex, Minster, oh, yeah. and then... Uh, yeah, sorry, Mercia, yeah. Mercia. 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 That's like Mercia. Mercia. No, that's my fault. Yeah, Mercia. Uh, yes, yeah. it was. And, and in fact, the, and, and some of the... So for that, I know that go on to you know is is linked to the Mercian kingdoms. Um, the church um, has some really interesting uh, artwork and carvings, and they depict uh, kings of Mercia from uh, around about the eighth ninth century within them. So yeah, Mercia, uh, the local infantry army regiment is called the Mercians, and part of the police force is called the West West Mercia. So yeah, Mercia has a really strong. Um, Sort of presence here still, really. So yeah, that, that's. I'm impressed, Jeff. That's really good with your English knowledge. I mean, you've impressed me there. Oh uh, well, I uh, <laughs> I read Edward Rutherford and Bernard Cornwall, so it's. it's oh yes, yes, yes. And also, it, it came up a lot in the in the show. Um, 
It was either Vikings or the last kingdom, maybe both. But anyway, um, I don't know. I, you know, like you, I, I, I enjoy history, which, you know, you wrote a book. I've got my little podcast. So, you know, that's, that's, uh, you know, but the similar interest base, you know, sort of takes you to the same place. And here we are intersecting, but, uh, the audience already knows about me, uh, more than I want, actually. Uh, <laughs> so let's, let's hear more about you and the, and this journey and this, this story. Um, so, you know, what happened? What, what was the first sighting? Um, you know, and, and, and I guess chronologically take us through sort of the, the yeah. journey of this little town. Okay. So, um, yeah. So I, I suppose the, the, what they call a flap in this country. So the first flap, uh, that was heard of was, uh, around about December 1922. And, you know, as I said, Locals were going up onto Burton Dasset because the stories were circulating that were lights could be seen, and these lights were described as red and bluish and whitish, um, going at different altitudes and uh, uh, different velocities around the hills. Appeared to be searching for some time, sometimes on their own, sometimes in pairs, uh, sometimes making grid-type shapes. So I suppose that had been going on. Uh, for some months, till eventually the papers were involved. Uh, so the local papers from London, well, uh, Oxford and Birmingham started sending reporters to the area to speak to the locals. Um, and the, the first, if you imagine the news report of the day, uh, was a chap by the name of George White, who was a local carpenter for the hall. Um, and he given an account uh, to the uh, Banbury Gazette, the Banbury is near Oxford, uh, to say that he and two friends um, decided to go up on the hills to see what all the fuss was about uh, on a Sunday afternoon and um, was, was then greatly uh, amazed when he did actually see these lights. But the, what's key about George uh, White's um, report is he tells the, he tells the reporter that he felt the light go over him. Um, and I think that was really interesting. That, that word that I got hold of from the paper report, that he felt it go over him, suggested it was more than just atmospheric, so it was more than just um, some sort of visible visible phenomenon. It had an atmospheric presence, it had a physical presence, it was interacting with its environment. Um, and um, he reported that the, he, he felt this, this light go over him. Uh, and then watched it sort of go off into the distance. And that was sort of corroborated by the two people who unfortunately aren't named in the report, but uh, were there saying that, you know, they saw the same thing. So we, we then get to uh, a number of other different reports uh, around that same time. Uh, some uh, people report that um, their house uh, was uh, lit up uh, by one of these orbs, uh, sufficient enough for them to read, and I, in the in the uh, you know the, my opening sort of chapter of the book describes the fictional account based on one of the accounts uh, that I found about how that light sort of uh, was searching through the house and was enough light to to read by. Now at that time, the only thing that could generate that sort of light would be perhaps a searchlight for. Um, for the uh, balloons at the, that time or uh, aircraft, but they were still in the very early stages and certainly nothing of this sort of size. Yeah, I wanted to ask um, you about that because the timing, the 1920s, 
I mean, this is on the heels of World War One. It's about the third or fourth decade in, into the Industrial Revolution. I don't know about uh, the, this part of the world, if, if it was uh, country or industrial or a little bit of both. Um, you know, but clearly, uh, I think you made the point that uh, without saying that, but this was definitely not a, like an uh, aurora borealis kind of phenomenon because the the light was palpable. I've seen the aurora borealis. I mean, it's it's beautiful, but you don't. There's not a physical presence that that you know that you feel a change in the air. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, it, uh, the area is is rural. Um, it would have been even more rural back uh, back then. Uh, but Birmingham is a big industrial area, of course. That is about twenty miles. Uh, north, but this was definitely, you know, from the accounts, these lights are definitely not touchable, but were, they, were in that environment, they weren't something that was way up in the sky. And were there still uh, like the searchlights going on from, from World well, War One and by, all that? Not by that time, um, really, Jeff. So, you know, 1922, 1923, obviously, flight is taking off because obviously there's a huge uh, increase in development as, as there is to any conflict in terms of. Air power, but it was still predominantly biplanes, twin engine biplanes. You would know if it was a plane, right? Um, and um, yeah, so it, 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 and they're described generally as about the size of a headlamp, but but within the sky. But they certainly have some sort of sentient um, control over them. So there's another uh, description of a motorcyclist who is riding late at night and turns a corner to see what he thinks he. Is another motorcycle coming towards him, and this light then suddenly veers off way up into the air uh, to avoid him. So, you know that, uh, and, I, and I think it's important to say that the accounts you get um, from people are very much that uh, these aren't um, um, uh, um, evil presence, so that they don't seem to be hostile. There's the people who are amazed by them, but they're not certainly not you know, frightened or scared by them. And it's overwhelmingly a positive experience for those people that do experience them. Um, so, yes, yeah, so there's the motorcyclist, the countdown. Well, you know, the, the one that tends to be uh, mentioned a lot is, is the signalman. So there, there is a signalman that whose um, job it is is to be uh, you know, observant, trained observer, railway line that runs from night courts, uh, which is more or less still there. And is linked to the military base, which no doubt will come on to. But the, there was a signalman at night court um, in the February of 1923, and he's in his uh, watchtower, and he sees an orange orb uh, drift down over the hills and sort of hover in front of him. And he's amazed by this, and he does not make of it. But you know, one can imagine he's thinking, "Well, is that causing a danger to my trains?" You know, they had an awful lot of responsibility in, in them days, and the trains were still um, predominantly passenger-type trains for people moving around the country. So he rang it into the, the local uh, police station and, and said, look, we've, I've got this orange line that's out, outside of me. And, and they, he, he must have been convincing enough that they, we know that the uh, police, two police officers were dispatched out to find out what, 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 what he'd saw. What um, is, um, I'm sorry, so what, what, what's yeah. Night Court? Is that, I mean, I assume it's not like, Night court, like the old sitcom, is it night like you know K N I? Night court is a small village, uh, just uh, uh, near Burton, Dasset. So you've got a number of villages around uh, the area, 
um, which is, you know, obviously still there now, but Nycourt was um, one small village where there happened to be a signalman uh, observation post, a signal box for the so, railway lines. So it's, it's sort of like a, um, a lighthouse except for trains. Yes, effectively, yeah. They, their job was to do the sig- to do the signals to see which because um, you at that time you we, you might not get a, a two two different railway lines. You might just have the one, so you might have to hold one train as the other one comes through, and then let the other one going in. Um, so the, the, there wasn't a military base there, but now <clears throat> the military bases they take up predominantly most of the um, of the railway lines that are still running actually. I'm, o- I'm always disappointed when, when British people talk about uh, the small town police and say police instead of the constabulary or whatever. I can't even say it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I mean, even just dispatching two police officers in a vehicle, that would take some doing in 1923. That's true. Because there isn't a lot of police vehicles around at that time. It is very much uh, local police, police officers living within villages. But I, I've put that down to. You know the, um, the 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 urgency that must have been in the single signalman's um, voice to say there is a big flashing orange light outside my signal box. What do I do now? You know, you can you can almost picture the picture of it. And anyway, as he, he watched it as it floated back off over the hills. It moved over its own volition back back over the hills and and it gone. But um, yeah, so there, there was that account, and then. The, the account, I think, which turns things at the time is um, there was a stable boy. He, well, he, he works for the hall, uh, the, you know, the, the, the local land, uh, uh, landowner uh, as a stable boy. And um, his name is Harry. I can't remember his first, second name at the moment. But he is uh, taking a horse down uh, to, the, to a nearby village from the... Um, uh, from the stables and describes how this, he sees a blue um, ball uh, floating in the air which upsets the horse. Now, again, uh, horses aren't generally that uh, spooked by naturally occurring phenomena, sure. but they are by changing atmospheres. They're very, very sensitive. I, my time in the military, I spent a bit of time working with horses and I understand them. So they were fine if they were out in the field and run around, but if they were brand new and you put them next to a bus or a motorbike, they would freak out until they, until they got used to it. But what that story did was it then gave a bit of a, a get-out clause for people, you know, the sceptics there would say, oh, well, probably what that blue light was um, next to a pool area, as happened to be, was a swamp gash, a marsh gash. Mm. So it, it then moved the story into, well, what we're probably seeing is, is marsh but that was one incident, and it doesn't sound like marsh gas. And in the book, I detail a bit of the science around marsh gas, which is actually really difficult to create. It generally is in hot and damp conditions, which February in Warwickshire yeah. is hot by any stretch of imagination. Isn't swamp gas usually like methane, so you would smell it as well? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no description of smell, but you're right. It, it's. Um, uh, diamethanol or something is the, is the correct term for it. But um, there was a study done in the University of Leicester actually, where with the uh, scientists tried to commit, uh, uh, com- um, make it in a laboratory setting, you couldn't do it be- because it is such a bit of a uh, an, an anomaly, really. But if you look on YouTube, etc., Marsh, you could see it's very, very quick. It moves a bit, 
but it's very, very quick. It's like a flash of a match or something going out, and then it goes off. But we, we, you know, we do know through you, you know throughout ufology, marsh gas has been used for all sorts of <laughs> sure. you know wonderful things that have been seen. So. Right, and central England, as you pointed out, is not exactly like the the bayou or the Okeechobee in the southeast <laughs> That's US. Right, yeah, certainly not in February. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess so there are these, these these accounts that sort of give uh, bring it to life, really. And some of the accounts were uh, from uh, Betty Smith's book, some were from newspapers. And what I think I, I've done with the book is just bring a lot of what was fairly separate, sort of siloed um, uh, facts and um, strange elements. This area. And just try to work out, is it all telling us one story? Which I, which I do believe it is. You've got the, the lights there, but then obviously you've got, uh, as, as I mentioned in the book, uh, a couple of other factors. So the hills themselves are set out um, in quite a, a new, unique way. You've got two at the front, and uh, sorry, two at the back, effectively high hills, and then three at the, three at the front, so Hart Hill, Windmill Hill, and Bonfire Hill. And if you were to look at them on a map, you would see that um, uh, Hearts Hill and Windmill Hill are in a sort of diagonal line to each other, and then Bonfire Hill is, is offset. Uh, so it's very much like um, the Orion's belt of the pyramids, the way the pyramids are set up. This oh. should be a diagonal line, but just one is just offset. And if you, when, when as part of my research, we went, I went up there quite a lot in February, and um, what I noticed was, you know, walking up the hills in February when Orion is high in the sky, uh, it almost looks as if, you know, Orion is, is stood on these hills and the um, geo uh, geography of the ground eerily matches the, the three stars of Orion's belt. Um, could, it could be coincidence, of course, and I imagine if you can go to lots of hills, you would find that. But the thing is, it's in Burton's acid, along with the sightings and um, everything else. So uh, we know that the the uh, geology of the place is very much iron ore. Uh, there was Iron Age settlement there. Uh, there was Iron Age uh, burials there. And iron ore was taken from the area right up until uh, the 1920s and used all the way through the First World War. I have a question uh, on these hills, and, yeah. it, and it may be a very silly question, but that's never stopped me before. Are we sure that these are hills? Has anyone done ground-penetrating radar to make sure that they're natural um, uh, hills and not something that might be have been artificial mounds or something? Of yeah, that, that's a, that, is, that, is a good, that is a good point, and that, and that has been mentioned before. No, we're fairly, you know, we, we are sure that they are naturally occurring hills. So the iron ore has been extracted from the hills sometimes so they'll have done a full survey etc to see what's going So there's been mines and things. Mining. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, exactly. So and before they start digging they need to know what they're digging into, etc. So but it, it is just just unusual where you and it's you know, you know Jeff as, as you know probably better than I do, but you do get this uh two in a row and one slightly offset three sort of pattern replicated everywhere. Mexico sure. to Chile to um, you know uh, uh, all, all other places obviously to the pyramids etc so th th this was just one theory that I thought uh, which I've, I've advanced in the book and, 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 and set out in the book and people can make their own mind up but it is striking if you go there on a clear 
February night, uh, like I have done. You just can't help uh, but but miss Orion stood up stood up there. Sure, it's a, it could be just a uh, landmark. I mean, and then a familiar landmark might attract a, a tourist. So just like uh, you see the Golden Arches, you know it's McDonald's, and you know that's a uh, you know you know what you're getting when you go there. Maybe it's it's, it's just <laughs> yeah, that simple. And it is so distinctive. I said the, the, the land is, is flat. If you go basically out to the east, it is flat more or less till you get to what's called the wash in England, which is around Norfolk and Suffolk and that sort of way, and then you get the North Sea. If you go west, you've got to go oh, 50, 50, 60 miles before you start to get to the Malvern Hills and then the Welsh Hills and the Black Mountains, etc. So for quite a big period, for a big sort of area, uh, the, the hills are very distinctive and you know what? You know the, whatever whatever these objects were that were around in nineteen twenty three. Okay, was, for okay. some reason were drawn to that drawn to that area. Do we? Uh, you said that there were blue lights and orange lights, and uh, is do you think it was the same object, different objects, just uh, the different colored lights on the same object? Yeah, th- yeah. I think there was there was probably a range of different objects there. Sometimes they're described in. One sometimes described as in three or fours. There's one account where it says a figure could be seen inside the lights. We've got this orange orb, which seems oh. to be different from everything else um, that's with the signalman. So yeah, there, there there is a number I think between that that sort of December February time. Some of them will be the same, no doubt, but there, there is an awful lot of activity. As, as I said, I've detailed eight or nine accounts, which is what I've got hold of, but there was probably hundreds before the papers got involved and start, um, start recording them, I guess. Who brought up the ghost thing and why? Yeah, so <clears throat> so after World War I, uh, there was a rise in spiritualism. So you, you may know this, but sort of spiritualism came to the UK um, shortly after the American Civil War. So American Civil War really the sort of start of modern spiritualism. And there was two sisters, I think they were called the Palmer sisters, that were um, would go around America and sort of introducing everyone to spiritualism uh, after the huge losses of the American Civil War. Uh, and then following that, they went to the UK and did uh, shows, etc. and the spiritualist church, so churches sort of taken off. Well, after the First World War, again, there was a rise in spiritualism and mediums and clairvoyance. So there was this idea that um, people wanted to, to, you know, have some confirmation that they hadn't lost their sons in the First World War, and they would see them again. Um, so the, the ghost angle came came from really that any any sort of strange lights. This is before the term UFO even existed. And there was some UFO, you know, we know now that there's some UFO lights in in, in various. It would probably be termed UFOs now, and there was the crash in Aurora, Texas, etc., and then sort of uh, things that were going out, which we look back at hindsight and say were probably UFOs. But at the time, um, it, we had the miracle of Fatima as well, which was around about, I think it was 1919, wasn't it? So that wasn't too far away. But again, that was attributed to a religious event rather than a UFO event. So it wasn't in, it wasn't in common parlance, UFO encounters, but ghosts have always been. Obviously, always been around. So, well, Fatima is Portugal. So, uh, and, you know, as, Portugal, the, right, yeah. as the crow flies, yeah. not not really all that far, or as the unidentified aerial phenomenon flies, not really that far. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right, yeah. 
Remind me what what was found? Was it wasn't it that either three women or one woman, like three sisters, saw what they thought was a, a, a spirit? They th- and they interpreted it to be the Virgin Mary. Is, is, is something along those lines? Yeah, it, it was. It was an interesting case. So, from my recollection, recollection, it was it was it was three children. So it, it was funny. It was children, and it was uh, I think there was a boy and, and two girls, but certainly centered around a girl. Uh, and the mother, so that was the, the, the female you're probably referring to, was saying that they're getting messages that they believe are from the Virgin Mary to say that they, she will present herself at the village uh, of Fatima at a certain date in 1919. And um, this got to the local priests, etc. And it, it, uh, it really caught people's imagination. And, um, you know, there, some of the reports would say that um, there was at least 100,000 people made their way on this specific date uh, to this uh, area. And this child was held up as a sort of oracle. And something happened there. You know, something did happen. Um, lights were seen in the sky. It's described as the sun was seen to melt. And um, it was it was witnessed by hundreds of thousands of people. Everyone, I guess, had their own interpretation of it. But what the church did afterwards, they recognised it as a miracle. They, they stated that the uh, Virgin Mary came down and gave three predictions of what was going to happen in the future, the next hundred odd years or so. Um, and my understanding is two were, and they, they, they were written down and sent to the Vatican and held in the Vatican, and two were released, which was fairly, you know, you know, fairly uh, um, standard fare around, you know, love, love God and Jesus, and we were all working for world peace, etc. But the third one has never been released, and nobody knows what that third prediction was, and they seem to be keeping that very close to their chest, and that's that's never been released, as I understand. But you know, there is there is. There's photos, but they're very grainy photos of some sort of light in the sky. Uh, I guess that's been reinterpreted by ufologists, perhaps as a visitation. Uh, we certainly know something happened because so many people saw it, mm-hmm. but the church got there first, uh, and the Catholic Church got there first. So clearly, uh, Portugal is, is an extremely Catholic country, and you know you, you'd have to be a brave person to, to try and dispute that. But some ufologists have looked at it again and said, well, that actually has more in common, a bit like these, the lights and burnt acid, that has more in common with a, a UFO, you know, uh, unidentified aerial phenomenon event rather than a religious event. But um, Sure, and then really what, what's the difference necessarily? Yeah, yes, yeah, 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 you're right, what, what is the difference? So, As a matter of practical was, effect, what's the difference? They're, they're both so far beyond what, what we are, it's it's in yeah. essence, uh, it's either the practical effect is in essence identical. Yeah, yes, it, it did, and it was, um, you know, was, after that, everything just stopped, the children went on and, I don't know, well, you know, lived no, fairly normal, happy lives, but um, yeah, you, you, you're dead right. How you interpret it, it was a, a, a child was receiving messages from some power well beyond ourselves, said that we're going to 
appear at a certain date, which they did, which very rarely happens, and a thousand, hundred thousand people saw something in the sky that they couldn't quite explain. Yeah, I remember the Vatican like, sent out an investigation, and I, you know, I think that for a while they, they agreed to make a shrine, but not a sanctified site, yes, which is right, sort of like a compromise. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think that the designation of a miracle took a while. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. I know, um, so, you know, the, the godfather of the ancient alien theory, um, Eric von Daniken, he writes an awful lot about it. And I think to him, it is a key event in the whole UFO, um, sort of journey, really, I, I, I think. But yeah, I mean, going, going back to, to the, to the point, so, Again, that was that was was it a UFO event? Was it a religious event? It was interpreted as a religious event because we didn't really have the lexicon for UFOs at that time. Mm-hmm. So it were these these lights that are seen on the hills. They, these are interpreted as ghosts, and you can completely understand that in the context of the time. People say, "Well, the ghosts, you know, we're the spirits of people that are, that are moving around. They're not acting like the spirits of people." Which is again the point I make in the book is tradition, you know, traditionally like. Ghosts can be can be lights, I suppose, but they're generally inside. They're generally fairly random. You know, the, these these objects that, are, that as, as described seem to have some sort of purpose. Seem to be affecting the environment. Um, seem to be affecting the people and the animals around them. Okay. Uh, yeah. I. Okay. So that answers the, the the ghost was that was just an easy explanation at the time. I mean, nobody was nobody reported like they they were being haunted or pursued or. Anything like that, and I suppose even then, uh, you know, I, I I don't know that there were any abductions involved here, but uh, I guess that could be a form of haunting in and of itself. As I speak, you know, extra extra temperously. Yeah. Yes. No. There was there was no report of any abductions that we're aware of. Uh, certainly none that made the various reports, and, and uh, not you know. As, as I said, really, they, they weren't perceived as hostile. Not that abductions are always hostile, from my understanding. But they, you know, they um, they weren't certainly perceived as that or a threat. It was joyous. You know, people were amazed by it. Really. Okay, so I, I think that you said that there were at least six different sightings that you've documented. Uh, I guess we're on the the first, or are we on the first and second? Uh, well, so the yeah, I think there was a total of eight. So oh, eight. we have like a, yeah, so there was um, um, uh, George White, there was the stableman, there was the um, the signalman, there was the maid, the maid, there was people in the house, you know. So there were you know they're, they're sort of detailed in the book, but they're, they're they're around you know there's around about eight different reports that made its way through for the varying different levels of corroboration. Um, some of them are named, some of them aren't. But um, the you know, for its time, it was pretty well documented an event. Any description of the figure you said in one of the lights, maybe the orange light that the figure was saw? Was there any sort of description there? No, no, there wasn't. It was it was actually from a that was from a group of people that had been up to see see the lights, and it was it was an unnamed source, but the paper reported that somebody. Had Believe that seeing a figure in one of the lights. Um, so how much weight you put that's only a single strand sort of report, but it, in, interesting nonetheless. And I guess people interpreted it in in their own, in their own ways. But uh, yeah, no other, other than just a figure in there. Um, 
there, there was nothing else really was uh, that the that supported that. Was that the main craft, or was that maybe uh, like a pod, the, 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 like a scout, or we just don't know? No, we just don't know. I mean, you, you, you make a good point regarding the scouts, just, and I do detail this. I, I, I think, you know, it's, I think what they are is probes, perhaps. So whether there is any physical presence in them, or, you know, uh, uh, living presence within those lights, I'm not so sure because in terms of the size and the movements, etc. But I think um, equally, people are coming round. Uh, you know, AV uh, Lobe is, is, is a big sort of uh, proponent of this. That if we're going to visit, which we do, we visit other planets, we send probes first, mm-hmm. check it all out because it seems a long way to go if there's nothing there. Um, these orbs, the different colours, they seem to be moving in a bit of a surge pattern. They're seen at different heights and velocities. They, they seem to me to be saying they're probes of some some sort, intelligently controlled, but they're there looking for something. Uh, so I, I I think they're probably probes and of of some of some type. Could probably you know there's this idea isn't there now where the the ideal way to do it is to send a probe to a a planet or a star system and they self generate. You know they create use the, the materials that are there to make lots of other little probes that then go out and go out and you know uh, replicate themselves. It could be something like that. Obviously, it's technology we don't understand, but it, it could be uh, you know that was part of a wider search pattern that we're just not aware of at the moment. Do you have any affiliation as a result of this with the Nayak Group or Mufon, or have you collaborated with anyone, or are you still doing this uh, sort of solo? Yeah, so I'm still doing so obviously we've got Flying Disc uh, Press, uh, so I, I work with, with Philip uh, with, with that, but um, uh, you know, generally I sort of research on, on my own, a bit of a lone wolf, I guess. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so the, and the organizers, so the organizations we have in the, the UK probably aren't as well organized as what we've got in, in, the, in the States. Uh, they are there, we have the British Ufology uh, before. Um, um, but uh, we, well, I don't know. I think I, I, what, I, what I like is I like speaking to other people to give them, the, the, you know, I lay out what I've discovered, and then people come in with other views, and I think that's really useful. But I tend to sort of do the research myself, and then um, you know, the, the, it's an ongoing picture. This I think, Jeff. So you know, people add to it all the time. So you know, re- recently I mentioned the church. Uh, I'll just go into. The, speak about the church so the all saints church which is based within the burton dasset area like i say it's quite a small area that's um sometimes called the cathedral in the cotswolds the cotswolds is the sort of local area to, uh, the, the, it's, it's near or the cathedral in the hills uh, and that started off as a small saxon chapel uh, around about you know the seventh eighth century but then in the middle ages um, it received a huge investment around about the 14th century, and it was suddenly expanded to this huge, uh, well, certainly big for a church for that area. It's in a really strange place as well. It's not on the top of the hills, which you'd imagine, so it sort of dominated the area, sort of tucked away in a bit of a valley in the hills. Um, so it had been certainly sited there for some reason. It's quite near a, a well, a special sort of well that was that was in the area that's believed to have had healing uh, properties. Um, but certainly in the, in the 14th century, it got expanded in the medieval times, which may have something to do with the fact that the village of Burton Dasset had a bit of a, 
um, an uplift then because they had a market there and people would go to that area for the, for the market so that there was money being generated that was being uh, put into the church. But at, at about that time, we then have these carvings that appear and these um, uh, artwork, this medieval 14th century artwork, which is quite, it's, well, it, it's, um, it's not that unusual in itself in terms of the artwork because lots of churches were decorated. But the fact that it's lasted so long is quite unusual. This come um, Oliver Cromwell and the Puritans, most of the uh, artwork inside the churches was actually just whitewashed straight over. But this remained um, as it was. Hmm. And uh, just, just with, with, in terms of the paintings, so one of the paintings is of um, St. Um, Saint Ethelbert. So this goes back to my point about learning information all the time. So there is there is a, a, a two pictures on well there's a number of pictures on the wall um, Virgin Mary and uh, Saint Michael are the two dominant ones over the eastern side of the chapel which is is obviously where the, uh, the cross etc and, and the altar is but then there's these other uh, pictures of a gargoyle that's described as or an angel type character but it, it looks a bit more like a demon <laughs> and there's there is pictures in the in the book. But there is, there is, and what's key to my story, I think, is these two images of, of two kings that nobody knows uh, really who they are. But one of them is supposed to be Saint Ethelbert. And just going back to my story about gathering information all the time, so Saint Ethelbert was beheaded in uh, around about six ninety AD in in a place called Hereford, which is nearby, so like 30, 40 miles to the west, and he was a martyr. Um, and he was he was be, be, uh, beheaded uh, because, he, because of his um, um, insistence to remain uh, Christian. Um, but I went to Hereford Cathedral recently, and I read reports there that they have a bit of literature there about Saint Ethelbert was taken. Um, uh, he was buried in Hereford, but he was he was actually killed around thirty or forty miles uh, south. And was as was tradition at that time, they would stay overnight with the body. The body was carried up, and then they would stay somewhere, and a cross would be laid. We we get this. This is a long going back um, uh, yeah, tradition, which is which is why in London we have King's Cross and um, Charing Cross and all these sort of places where it's in a said border seal was was left on our, on our way back uh, to Colchester. But uh, he was left. But what was interesting was there was a report that wherever he was left. It was it was met with, and this this was written at the time, so it was written in the annals of the of the um, seven eight eight hundreds. So as close as you possibly get, there was always mysterious happenings that were occurring wherever the body was left. There was mysterious happenings. Now it doesn't give what these mysterious happenings were, but certainly there, it was it was it was felt at the time that where Henry was laid, um, things things were happening. Whether it be miracles, whether it be reports uh, um, of ghosts or lights in the sky, etc., all the way up until he was taken to Hereford. Now they don't know where he was buried in Hereford, but there is a central monument where it's about the closest you're going to get, and that is seen as a bit of a shrine as well. Really, so it should be funny. What occurred to me is it, 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 that this Saint Ethelbert is um, is painted and depicted. In All Saints Church, and um, Saint Alphabet has this mystery around around him, around these sort of strange events. 
they sort of believe it's because the, the figure is depicted holding his own head, and very often he is showing holding his own head, saying Ethel Bird. Um, and, and but the, nobody really knows who it was. But you know, that's who the surmising. Is he the inspiration for the uh, King of Hearts card? The King told him his own cat head. No. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I don't know. Actually, that is a good point. You know, that was maybe worth looking into. Who cut off uh, his head? Was it was it the, yeah. the Vikings? Uh, it was. It was. It was your old friends, the Mercians. Oh. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because he he was actually he was um, he was from Northumbria originally. He was a prince of Northumbria. So about that time, I'm certainly I'm no expert on um, um, as much as I'd love to be Anglo-Saxon um, Britain, but with the, the the big uh, kingdoms at that time, going 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 back to um, the Bernard Cornwall books, etc., were um, it, Northumbria, Mercia, and Wessex, uh, and they would generally just be fighting, and, and power would rotate. But he was he was effectively told to marry a Mercian princess. Uh, so he came down from Northumbria uh, and wouldn't con- uh, wouldn't give up his Christian faith because obviously Northumbria was really big on the Christian side because of Lindisfarne and um, uh, Saint Bede and people like that. What was the he dominant religion? Was it uh, the was it like some sort of Norse Celt or was it some sort of like Druid well, Celt? Uh, <laughs> yeah, the sort of Mercians at at that time were, were still sort of pagans, still had. The the, um, the Viking influence was was there, but you would have the Danelaw as well, which came a bit later. But they were basically pagans really around the Mercian, and were very close to Wales then. So the, the Welsh influence, the Celts and the Druids, it was was still you know still quite strong. But because he wouldn't give up his Christianity, and the marriage wasn't going very well, so I think it was a bit of an out for the farm. <laughs> uh, which I guess we've all been there. Uh, they, they've, uh, no comment. They've, they've, <laughs> They've, uh, they've 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 cut his uh, yeah they've cut his, his head off so yeah it was it was the Mercians that were responsible for it but many years later he was made a saint of course and he is depicted in All Saints All Saints Church Saint Saint Ethelbert. Who's the other king but, that was painted is or is it yeah so so that's where it, that's why I think really links to my story because nobody knows so there is a king and we know as a king because he got crowned. Um, he's got the sort of fancy curly hair that was. So these paintings were done in the 14th century, but they were of eighth and ninth, seventh uh, uh, and eighth century kings. Um, but he's in, in his finery, crown, beard. He looks like a king, and 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 in his in his arm, his his left arm, as is portrayed, there is what you what you'd call, I suppose, a um, a vessel, a bottle. Something like that, and it it looks like if you imagine a bit of like a light bulb, but it's um, or a lamp. You know, it's sort of uh, quite wide, circular in the middle. It has a bit of a stand, and it's got a pointy bit at the top. But around the middle bit of this bottle is undulating lines, so that gives the impression of movement, perhaps mm-hmm. evolving. And the king has his left hand out, and then this 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 orb is on top of it. And I, I think the Eureka moment came for me. And there's, there's pictures in the books of people, please buy the book and make up your mind. But the, the Eureka moment came to me is I noticed that the the bottle is not resting on the king's hand. It's floating above it. Oh. And there is a good two or three inches between that. Now, it's there is some erosion there, whether that's been 
natural or perhaps the church haven't been that too open-minded and many years later they thought well we can't get rid of the whole pictures but if that bit falls off you know it, 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 it might muddy the waters as to whether it's floating his hand or not hmm. um, but I, I, I know again I'm no expert on 14th century medieval art but from my research I cannot find any other pictures and I detail the research in the book I can't find any other pictures of an a a bottle or an orb or a um, chalice or whatever you want to call it floating above someone's hand a king's hand if it's the so people attribute it the church would say oh it's one of the wise men well I've seen other depictions of the wise men and they're clutching you know what could be frankincense or myrrh they're clutching it and if you look at pictures of the Christ child for example um, holding uh, anything um, for like St Christopher then they, they hold it like a bottle they hold it like an orb it's you know, the, the, the artistry of the time would show it's sophisticated enough to show somebody holding something. But this doesn't. It shows it floating above the hand. So we have a true mystery painted next to a uh, sanctified mystery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, that, that's right. And, and and I think that was my, you know, that we, we all, writers and researchers, and no doubt you do, you know, you're doing your podcast, you, you live for the moment where you think, I've hit on something no one else has. You know, I, I'm, I'm maybe the first to work this out. I might not be, of course, but I was the first one to put it in print. Okay. Um, that counts. And, uh, I thought, uh, so that, that, is, that is brilliant. So, again, on its own, if that church was anywhere else, you'd think, well, that's interesting. But then it's in an area that has these orbs in 1923. It's an area that's got these three hills. It's in a, the, within the church as well, and I, I would encourage anyone to, to go to the church, you know, the buys the, the book. There is these carvings. So there's the north side of a church is, is traditionally known as the evil side of, the, of a church. And that, and probably through coincidence, but that, that north side faces Burton Hills. But if you look at a church in, in England or on the, on the continent, etc., uh, any sort of gargoyles, etc., will generally be on the north side because the idea was to ward off evil. Mm-hmm. So within uh, uh, All Saints Church, there is these columns on the north side of the church that have been engraved. Um, they're, they're supporting columns, and, and where the support uh, joins the main column, that they've been engraved. And there's some unusual uh, things in there, and some way out things as well. So you know what you'd say is unusual. There's a depiction of what's termed the Green Man. So the Green Man is an, an, an ancient English, probably back to Roman figure, which um, is sort of man's face, but it's made up of oak leaves and vegetables and vegetation. And the, in, in, in pagan times it was, and Roman times, really, it was, it was used to signify the joining of two worlds, the human and the natural, the Christianity and, and paganism. Now, it's, it, they're not that common in churches, but, but, but they do exist elsewhere, but certainly All Saints has one. So it has a green man there, and he appears to be holding um, uh, some vegetation, etc. You've got a sort of half-man, half-lizard-type um, creature, so uh, the top half of a man and the legs of what looks to be a lizard or an animal. So the reptilian um, right there. and the, the... Yeah, and the, and the possibly, you know, possibly, yeah, but then my favourite is You've got a uh, so, um, basset uh, um, means the hunt. It's a, it's a hunting area. Um, 
And so there is there is depictions of animals being hunted, hares and uh, deer, etc. But then, uh, as you follow the sort of gra- en- engravings around, you see that some of the animals are upside down. <laughs> so you've got some running on the floor, and then you've got two or three that are just upside down. So are they being portrayed being levitated, being brought up into the air? There's no, there's no explanation. Uh, Plain dead in the air. Again, in, in, in that sort of area, you've got your paintings, you've got your lights, and now you've got these strange engravings. And then... I suppose the final bit is, once you've got all this going on, what else do you need for uh, a UFO story? Well, you need a military base. So we've got one. So directly opposite uh, Burnham Hills, you can go up Burnham Hills and look over into MOD Kyneton, which is one of the largest um, ammunition store within the United Kingdom. It holds the ammunition around, uh, I think it's around about 35 the centre of all the ammunition for all the armed forces within the United Kingdom, because it's quite central. It has 76 miles of train track. Um, at, at some point, I, I, I don't want to you know, get too dragged down to this, and I do make this clear in the book, but at some point, tactical nuclear weapons will come through there and move on. So you, you generally get this link around UFOs and nuclear bases as well. Mm-hmm. It's, one of the, it's one of the few areas in the country that has these high-density um, ammunition stores, so they can they can hold some of the top, you know, the most dangerous uh, type ammunition in the country. Yeah, there's a lot of connection between plutonium sites and uh, UFO type sightings. Yes, yes, and and, and and the military bases. Now, the military base actually appeared around about 1944, so well after these lights were seen. Um, but uh, and it was it was originally a, se- a central um, depot for troops moved off. It then became an ammunition um, storage area during World War Two. But then has remained uh, in that in in that area until it, it is what it is today, which is one of the most secretive bases in the United Kingdom. Um, so yes, and, that, and you you go up, you can go to Windmill Hill and look directly straight into it. It's literally a stone's throw away. So again, within this small area. I've got all these all these things going on, and um, that's why I felt that the story needed to be written. Really. Going back to the the green figure, and I don't want to spend too much time on the answers. Just no, but are are we? Uh, does anyone speculate that maybe that's the Green Knight from the Arthurian uh, tales? Um, well, so I, 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 that's a good point, Jeff. I, I'm not, I'm not sure whether they're connected. The, the Arthurian tales probably go back to medieval England when they're written down. So, um, uh, But the, the, obviously the stories go well back into Saxon area and it's difficult. It gets a bit misty after the Saxon yeah. area about who, who King Arthur was and can it all go way back to, to Roman. So uh, the, the, green, the, the Green Knight may have some influence. I think that green figure, the, the, the green man and Morris dancers, uh, and um, some of the festivals and witches, uh, etc. I think are all along. You know, when, I mean, when I say witches, you know the the sort of white witches, if you like, the the, the, her, the herbalists and the healers of them time, those sort of times. So sort of all connected, and it's maybe represented in the in in the green in the green light. But I don't know the details of that. But the 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 the, the green man is a very very ancient English, you know. British, uh, Romano British symbol, and it's yeah. interesting it's in the church. So you could you, you you could speculate that actually is the joining of two worlds because it's there. Was was it this world and wherever you know these objects came from? 
you know, because it's generally used as the joining of, of two cultures, that green man. Right, yeah. The, yeah, your interpretation seems like it's a much more benevolent, almost something that uh, may have been taboo, that, that earth and, and divinity are the same. I have had a uh, three-time guest on the show named Andrew Goff, um, and he's American, but he's in the UK, so I don't know, maybe maybe he'll get in touch, but he has a whole uh, line of, of theories on uh, the the green man, the image of the green figurine, uh, pan-culturally, like uh, throughout history and in many different yeah. places. So uh, that might be an interesting digression if you want to look into that more. But. Yeah, that'd be, that'd, be, that'd be really good. So this idea of getting other people in to um, sort of peer review, if you like, some of my work, I think is a fabulous idea. You can already learn from I'm really good at volunteering other people for things. So, <laughs> <laughs> for work. Yeah, right, right for work. But but I actually think he'd be interested. I I, I know yes, that he, yes. he loves talking about this stuff, and he's been a, he's been a great guest. Uh, and if anyone's a new listener, go check out his, his three episodes. Um, one's called the Pusin Code. One's called Into the Great Wide Inner. I, and I'll say I forgot what the what the third one is, but uh, just search bar Andrew Goff, G O U G H. Um, okay. Um, so I sort of got you, uh, backtracked a little bit on, on the green man and you were a few hundred years ahead of that, um, at this point. Um, so where are we in, in your tale as to the book or, or, uh, were you bringing it to a conclusion or are we still sort of uh, midway through? I, I think, I think we probably would more or less bring it to a conclusion. I don't want to give everything away. But, sure, of course um, not. They have to read <laughs> uh, the book. Yeah, I, I think in terms of the story, but I mean, I've just been really, really surprised, pleased with the reception. You know, I get to talk to people like yourself, which is great. I've been on uh, numerous other um, uh, podcasts. I, I made the Daily Star, which is a, calls itself a newspaper, but it's more of a tabloid in Britain on Christmas Day last year with my story. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the book's doing really well. It's very positive reviews. And I think people, because it's a new story, that no one really had heard about in terms of the you know the ufology world, then people have been you know very very uh, positive about it, and that's been great. It's been a great journey. Um, I'm I'm now moving into researching some other areas, but um, you know no doubt this story this story will will go on. Well, I'm no marketer, but I can do math, and you said it started in 1922, and we're about to 2022. So you you're about on the centennial anniversary. So I have to believe that the you know you can do a book tour in and around this area, uh, you know, celebrating the centennial and uh, you know get get some coverage on that and and uh, seize upon that. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah, so I do I do t- I do talk at the local pub, which seems to go down very well. Um, so yeah, so yeah, that that is a good idea. So in terms of marketing. I've still got another year or so to, to go with it, but um, yeah, no, it, it's been it's been a great experience, really. Great, and, and completely side, you indicated that Bassett is known for hunting. Is this where Bassett hounds are from? Uh, I think whether whether the term, the old English term Bassett hound, is probably where it, it does come from because they are they are hunters. Yeah, so it's an old English word, Bassett, which does mean of the hunt. So I imagine that's where it's come from, but it doesn't originate. There is other other places called Bassett around the around the, around the country. Oh, gotcha. I'm not sure whether Burton Burton is a very common name in this area, and I guess that could be a Norman influence with the ton on the end there. But um, yeah, uh, uh, Bassett. Uh, sorry, Bassett is is a 
It is, it is an old uh, English word. Do we do we still not like the Normans, or are the Normans okay now? Uh, well, <laughs> no. I mean, it all adds to the rich history that is England. Right? <laughs> so we, we've constantly been evicted at various different levels. Uh, they do say about the English is we, we don't get on with anybody. We always managed to upset them at some point. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the history, I mean, uh, Warwickshire itself is an ancient, ancient uh, place. You know, they, they can go back. You know, most of it was covered in in um, woods and forests going back. But in Roman times, we have the Foss uh, Road, and um, the which is one of the main intersections, and Car- um, the uh, road that went from City London up to Cheshire and Chester, uh, that went past us. There's reports that maybe Bordesia actually met a, um, a final battle, was not too far away from where I am, uh, somewhere near the A5. Uh, I mean, it is a fantastic place to live if you, if you enjoy your history. And that's the ancient history. You know, the, what I'm looking at now is is uh, moving into sort of uh, UFO sightings around the 1950s, um, particularly in, in the UK, but also further further afield. And, you know, there is, you know, there's a, after the World War II, there's a huge, uh, massive increase in sightings that last to about 1962 and um, yeah, so there's all into research. We have quite a few uh, bases where we were as well. So yeah, it's 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 rich pickings. Well, the timing couldn't be better because of not just the centennial, but so the worldwide disclosures from uh, the U.S. military, among others, that hey, this this stuff is real, and we can only explain away a very small percentage of it. We're not going to say anything more, but we're not saying it's it, it's not something. We're it's definitely something. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, it is. It's a lot easier to be a ufologist now than it was maybe ten years ago, I think, because actually, if you're if you're arguing, you know, arguing your point with somebody, you can point to the Nimitz and the Theodore Roosevelt sightings, which you know, and uh, which has turned things on its head. And the government, U.S. government's recognition is not so much over here, really. They're still playing their cards very close to their chest. But I, th- I, th- I think people like Avery Loeb coming into it as well, and the. Uh, Projects that that he's running, so yeah. you know we're getting these people real academic credibility, saying, "Do you know what? There's something in this," uh, and I think that's that's really positive. Yeah, he just started the Galileo project, and he's, Galileo project, yeah, yeah trying right, to actually yeah. send arrays of of telescopes pointed in the direction of where he thinks interstellar. Um, junk or travelers might be coming from because uh, you know he found a. Uma Wuma, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, um, but uh, you know that he thinks was a part of a solar sail, basically. Uh. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting. What he's saying is actually we bumped into it, so it was probably a bit like a, li- um, a, a life buoy in the water, and it was left there. And then as we've moved around um, the galaxy, we've we've interjected with it, and it sent off some sort of signal, and that. That has a ring of truth to me about it. I just think he's doing some really good work. You know, his book's really good as well. So yeah, and 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 that's I think that's what we need. And I, I tend to be, you know, more of a nuts and bolts type of a guy because uh, you know there, there is a definite place for the sort of multi-dimensional stuff. But if you want to influence change on Earth and and get people to buy into what you're trying to say, then they will they will need some sort of nuts and bolts craft. At the end of the day, they're going to need something solid. Uh, because because that's how you know that's how proof works. 
people need to see with their own, their own eyes. And I just think that that is the way to go. That, that sort of science um, is, is is what we need at the moment. So it's very exciting times. No, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and uh, it's been a sort of an embarrassment of riches. I, I sort of stumbled upon Philip Bramble, and uh, he's been very generous with the authors. And there's, you know, my my original goal was just to have uh, four back to back to back to back weeks to do sort of a, a UFO month. And he, he's given me too much. I'm, I'm probably gonna have to divide it up into, uh, you know, <laughs> four, four four weeks, uh, you know, this year, and then four weeks next year, and then. Who knows what else is coming? I saw he was advertising a new book today that seemed to be uh, maybe more on the uh, spooky side. I think it was called the, the Boogeyman Chronicles. So I'm interested to learn about that one as well. But yeah, um, I, 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 it sounds like you caught the, the bug and you're going to continue researching and you're going to move into, like you said, the 40s, 50s and, and then uh, keep researching and maybe there's going to be more books in the future. Who knows? Yes, I, th- I think so. Yeah, I've certainly caught the bug, and uh, it does take a lot of work. The <laughs> general I'm sure you appreciate. So, you know, what I'm researching now, I've done for a year already. I've probably got another year of research to go, and then I start writing, and then you go through the, the process as well. So, it, it is a labour of love, but uh, you know, once, once, once it's all done and you get to talk to people about it, then, it, then it's great. Yeah, well, I wish I wish you luck with that. I I've been working on a book for you know thirty years, and uh, it's got a really good beginning. It's got a pretty killer end. It has absolutely no middle. So, <laughs> so uh, that, that's sort of a major problem. Um, so I think that my book will never come out, but that's all right. I I'll satisfy my creative itches other places. So, uh, uh, well, where can they find you? Where can they find the book? Um, how do they follow you? Uh, you know, basically, this is your yeah. free promotion time. Okay, great. Well, yeah, the book is uh, Lights Upon the Hills by Richard Roper and yourself. Uh, you can find it on Amazon. If you search the Lights Upon the Hills on Amazon, it will, it will come up there. Uh, if you go to Philip Mantle's uh, Flying Disc Press, you can, you can find it there. And if people want to contact me, uh, please, please do let me know what you think or if you have any views or you've got anything you'd like to tell me about the area or elsewhere, uh, then I'm on Facebook as uh, Richard Rugby. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Enjoyed having you. Good luck uh, with the book sales. And uh, uh, hopefully we'll be having you back for uh, for future adventures and promotions. That's great. I really enjoyed it. Thanks very much, Jim. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And you'll hear from us again next week.
apply to Victoria University and choose the smart way to study. With VU's award-winning block model, you'll complete one subject every four weeks. That's the sharp way to stay focused. The best way to get support starts with smaller class sizes and more one-on-one -on -one time with your lecturers. So for the brighter way to see your future, choose VU. Apply now. Victoria University, the new way to do uni.